Hey, my name's Emma. Hey, my name's Maddie. And you're listening to The Pilot's Pandemic. Airfare, healthy snacks on the go. Airfare curates and delivers healthy snacks to flight crew, travelers, and aviation businesses. They've sourced more than 50 snacks from small businesses across North America. Hundreds of pilots love these snacks because they are healthy, unique, and have a long shelf life. And they're perfect for keeping you feeling great in the flight deck. Our listeners can get 50% off their first order of customizable snacks using our discount code pilots podcast at checkout so go visit airfarepouch.com to check out all the snack options and learn more again that's airfarepouch.com to use our code pilots podcast for 50% off your first order of truly healthy snacks Hey y'all, welcome back to the Pilots Pandemic Podcast. You're here with your host, Emma, and our lovely co-host, Maddie. Hey guys. And today we are here with special guest, Joe LaRusso. Hey Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Always, always. It is a pleasure to speak with you. Um, So Joe, do you want to give yourself a little bit of an introduction and tell our listeners who you are? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm an aviation attorney out in Colorado, um, and I am the uh, director of aviation law with a firm called Ramos Law. Um, And then in addition to that, I am uh, still a uh, commercial pilot, professional pilot. So, you know, flying part of the time and lawyering part of the time, depending on which week you get me. Nice. Well, thank you for making time to come speak with us. We have a bunch of questions and I can't wait to get into them. But so you're one of the first pilots that we've spoken to or who's come on the show who really knows the ins and outs of the special issuance process and all the legal jargon with the FAA. Um, but specifically, you work with pilots to help get them out of the HIMS program, which we're going to dive into in a second. But I also like to ask people how they got into aviation and what their background is. So share your side of the story and how you got here and where it has led you in your career. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so pilot first, so uh, pretty typical pilot story uh, flying before I got my pilots or my driver's license. So I've been flying for as far back as I can remember. Um, I was actually a lineman at at 13 at a private airport and trading uh, work hours for flight hours. Um, Kind of weird. Nobody in my family was a pilot. Um, so I don't know where I got that bug and nobody in my family is an attorney. So I don't know where I got that bug either. Um, but, um, came up through flying, um, by the time I went to college, I went to the air force Academy and, and I had my commercial at that time and, um, was, uh, competing in aerobatics, um, had a, a flight school, um, for a while. I owned a flight school for about five years. And then during that time, uh, kind of focused on tailwheel aerobatics, bush stuff. And then um, and then I started in 2012, started air showing. Um, so I still air show in a uh, 43 uh, Boeing Stearman uh, 450 and then also in a uh, uh, 78 Jet Provost Mark I, uh, or excuse me, Mark V. And uh, um, so still do that today. And then uh, um, I also fly um, 
as a, uh, uh, I have an ATP and, and I fly a handful of Learjets, a handful of citations, and then I fly a, a weather Learjet for, uh, we contract on different entities, most commonly NASA and most commonly NCAR and NOAA, um, but I'm actually spooling up right before this call at a, a call with uh, Houston. We're spooling up for a project escape. At the end of the month, I'll be down in the Gulf uh, hurricane hunting. So that's kind of the uh, the aviation side of the house. Um, lawyer in, um, you know, I actually kind of went there on a whim and uh, and focused on aviation law. And I actually started my career uh, by putting people into the HIMSS program, uh, which is a little bit odd. Yes. So um, and then very, very quickly realized that the program is uh, uh garbage, I don't know, for lack of a better term, yeah. um, and started pulling pilots out of the HIMSS program. And during that time, I've now become specialized uh, to where I, I principally represent uh, pilots that are having medical issues with the government. So I do it all, um, big focus on HIMSS, but, you know, do everything from cardiac issues to uh, cancer to kidney stones, you name it, anything the FAA thinks is problematic, I'm on it. Wow. You're like, you have done like everything. I was just thinking, wow, you owned a flight school. That's insane. That's something we didn't touch on when we talked to you earlier. So I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Um, um, But I did have a question for you because I also didn't know prior to you becoming a HIMSS lawyer to get pilots out, I didn't know that you first were putting them in the program so Uh how did that 360 degree change like happen like what story led you to instead of putting them in the HIMSS program how did you decide actually this isn't right I want them out of the program like what was that turning point yeah so a lot of people don't realize but the HIMSS program is actually a 121 program so 121 meaning it's an airline program um and I think what the FAA misses is that there are many pilots that aren't airline drivers that still rely on their license for their livelihood. So, you know, part 91 uh, drivers, you know, uh, flight instructors is a good one there, skydiving pilots, uh, banner towing pilots. And then you got 135, you know, the charter world, uh, charter pilots are a, uh, um, you know, they, they rely on their license just like a, a United Airlines pilot relies on their license. So back in the day, the HIMSS program is only available for 121 airline drivers. And what we did was we would take an airman who, you know, maybe was an alcoholic uh, or had a, a history of uh, drug use or something like that, uh, has been rehabilitated, has been uh, um, kind of reintroduced to the world properly. And we would put them into the HIMSS program. And it, we called it back in the day, the HIMSS-like program. So we use all the same HIMSS monitoring and the FA was comfortable taking a part 91 pilot and applying the same monitoring requirements so that they could get their license. As opposed to uh, back in the day, if you were to come to the FA with two DUIs as a 91 pilot, the FA would just deny you outright and say, nope, sorry, you're an alcoholic, see you later. So that was our initial focus was getting those 91 and 135 drivers into the HIMSS program. And then very quickly through that program, I realized that it became less about the clinical medicine, less about recovery, uh, less about remission, and it ca- became more of a CYA for the airlines, and then it became more of a CYA for the FAA. Um, and at that point in time, we made the decision that, you know what, until this program gets sorted out, we're going to start pulling pilots out using the regulations as our, uh, as our weapon to do so. Can you um, real quick just um, define what CYA is? 
just in case. Yeah, it's uh, cover your ass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I think I'm interpreting this <laughs> Maddie's yeah, like, because... I'm an intellectual. I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a real, uh, it's a real sophisticated legal term. Yes, it is. Oh God, that's funny. <laughs> that's hilarious. I'm laughing. Okay, so obviously you just kind of explained some of the flaws at with the hymn system that you've kind of found out, but could you detail a time or a story that a pilot was wrongfully placed in the hymns program? Sure. Yeah. So I got a great line of uh, a pilot and a mechanic were dating the same flight attendant. Um, pilot shows up, uh, you know, the flight attendant ended up choosing the pilot, uh, you know, whatever drama is involved there. Pilot shows up for his flight super early in the morning, like a five o'clock flight. Uh, mechanic knows, obviously, that the pilot's flying that flight. Mechanic calls into the airline and says, I saw him walk into the airplane. He's drunk. So, mm. you know, the pilot gets met by his EAP at the airplane. Um, they, uh, they don't blood test him. They don't, you know, do anything like that. They just say, hey, we got a report that says that you were drunk. Uh, we need you to go get an evaluation by our hymns doctor. Um, so, of course, the pilot goes, all right, you know, no problem. I'm definitely not drunk, but, yeah, I'm happy to get an evaluation. Um, that evaluation uh, ended up being in a city not where he's uh, located. Um, and they told him, hey, just in case, pack your bags for a 30-day rehab stay um just in case oh the uh, psychiatrist says that you know you do have a problem um and sure enough uh the pilot ends up getting admitted so um that's a great example where rather than doing the investigation the airline just chose you know heard the word drunk and heard the word airplane in the same sentence and said we got to cover our ass on this one put him into rehab we'll get him into the hymns program that way we can ensure that he'll never drink again done and done I feel like I've heard a few of these stories before where pilots, either their like their relationships, like they're with people or if someone's dating the same person or they have this relationship where the person they're dating is unstable. And then something like that happens where they get reported to their company or some calls their union. And which kind of leads me to my next question, because um, what I'm finding out is that Em and I both, um, is that the system seems like really it's set up against the pilot. Like they're yeah. guilty until they're proven innocent. Um, and that's with the FAA, the union and the company. So I guess my next question is like, can you share with us how the company FAA and union kind of capitalize on a pilot's career? Yeah, absolutely. So, so like I said, the HIMS program started out in the seventies as a 121 airline program. So essentially back in the 70s, you know, the, the old stereotype of the drunk airline pilot was, was true. Um, a lot of pilots were losing their license for DUIs and drinking. And um, so the airlines, uh, most notably ALPA, the union came in and said, hey, look, there's gotta be a way that we can rehabilitate these pilots so that we don't have to just kick them out of the program. You know, it costs a lot of money to train these pilots. We'd like to find some way to retain them. So that's where the HIMSS program finds roots in. Um, and it kind of died off a little bit in the 80s and then was reintroduced again in the late 80s. And it was reintroduced with a big push by the FAA. Um, so they essentially said, hey, we like this program. We want to keep going with it. Oh, by the way, we'll pay for it. So the HIMSS program is a federally funded program. 
federally funded only for 121 airline drivers. Yet the FAA holds the him standard to every pilot, like we discussed. So a flight instructor who who is thrown into him's program doesn't get their program paid for like a Delta pilot who goes into the exact same program, theirs is paid. So what happens is the airline pays for all the treatment and then sends a bill to the government and the FAA reimburses that. So it is very much a, uh, a money mill for the airlines. Mm-hmm. I didn't even realize that, that the, the company can pay and then the FAA will reimburse. Like that's something that I, I didn't really realize. Yeah, that's the incentive is uh, uh, the incentive for the FAA is that, you know, they're paying for this so that that the airlines will utilize the program, right? If they're getting paid for it, they're going to be more inclined to utilize it is the is the logic there. Wow. It's good to know. It kind of leads me into the next question, because Maddie and I are always having conversations about like the allegiance to or alliance with your airline and your company. And oftentimes we kind of see pilots viewing their company through a little bit of a rose colored glasses. Like they're not necessarily seeing the full picture. Um, So can you give our audience a clue as to why airlines use quote unquote, we are a big family as a marketing ploy? Like why do they want pilots to buy into that? Um, so they use the HIMSS program mostly, like I said, for CYA, but it's also for, uh, it's kind of like, uh, um, job security on the part of the airlines, right? So if they get a pilot into the HIMSS program, not only is that pilot now monitored for the rest of their flying career. So, uh, for example, uh, let's throw in the absolute worst defender Delta. Um, please feel free to come at me, Ed. Um, Delta is uh, the worst offender of the HIMSS program, and they will throw pilots into the HIMSS program for any reason that they can justify, even on a thread. Um, and then once you're in the HIMSS program, they have you on either a contract A or a contract B, and those contracts essentially say that that pilot is the ownership and property of Delta. They are never going to drink. They're never going to abuse a, a, a substance again. They're never going to, I mean, they won't even steal a pen from uh, the training center. Um, Delta has them uh, completely. Um, and then because they're marked with the, uh, the HIM Scarlet A, they're not going over to America, which is the second worst offender. Uh, they're not going over to JetBlue. They're not going to Spirit. They're not going to United. They're essentially property of Delta. So in a pilot shortage here, um, the airline is able to put their claws in and keep that pilot um, functional and obedient within the airline. So it's in their best interest to, to tote the HIMSS pro, um, program as like, a, you know, don't worry about it. We're going to get you, we're going to get you treatment. It's going to be an easy program. You're going to get paid during it. It's not a big deal. You know, don't worry about it at all. Um, but that's why that's what's happening behind the scenes. It really like feels like they are getting duped like they're like, oh, yeah, we're here to help. But but not really like we're we're going to lock you in and keep you here for the rest of your life. And also you have to be uh, the best um, employee like you can have no you know, problems or else you're going to get fired. It's almost right. like being on that like six month probation that usually happens with pilots when they first start an, at an airline, except it's for the rest of your time there. Correct. Which is. Yeah. I can't even imagine the amount of stress, like, and mentally speaking, that's just, I don't think that's realistic. (laughs) Nobody can function at their perfect self all the time. Like we all as humans make mistakes. 
So it's kind of unnerving to hear that. It also reminds me of like, if you have any altercation with anyone or someone doesn't agree with you or flight attendant doesn't like you or anything, you can just be called out and then, Um, you know, hymns will put you right back into place or you don't keep your job, you know? So that's kind of normal. Um, so next question is like, um, I think it's really unnerving to know that your company doesn't always have your, your best interest at heart. Um, and then the FAA doesn't really have your best interest and neither does your union. So like if a pilot is at an airline and does have an event where they get caught in like the wrong place, right time, wrong time kind of thing, um, drinking or something else, like what do they do first? Do they call their union rep? Do they call you? Like what sure. do they do? Yeah, good question. So oftentimes they turn to the union first. It's important to note that the HIMSS program was developed by the unions, right? So the unions are in a difficult position because they can't really advocate for the airmen because advocating for the airmen would be in some way discrediting the program, right? Saying, hey, this pilot doesn't need to go into this program because A, B, and C, right? Now there's arguments against the utilization of the HIMSS program. So they can't really advocate for the pilot um, and they can't really advocate for the airline, right? Because that, that's completely against a, a union's nature, right? A union's there to protect the pilots. So certainly no advocate, uh, can't advocate for the airline. So who do they advocate for? They advocate for themselves, right? Um, the union tries to say, hey, we built this program. It's a good program. Don't worry about it. You're gonna get flying again because we allowed that process. Otherwise you wouldn't have a job at all. But you know, at the end of this road, you're gonna fly again. So you know, pat us uh, on the back type situation. So union is, uh, uh, they're in a very difficult position um, that they've created for themselves. So the best thing to do as a pilot, if you get into a situation where um, an EAP is calling you in saying, hey, we want you to get evaluated is uh, to contact an aviation attorney. Um, at least get an attorney on your side, get a quick consultation so that you know the lay of the land prior to getting into uh, a, a situation that is hard to walk yourself out of. I think it's, inter- oh, go ahead, Maddie. Well, I was just thinking, do you encounter a lot of the time with pilots that they actually are like already in the program because they haven't called you as a lawyer um, and because they haven't even thought of that? Like, because I feel like if, if HIMSS is kind of like duping these pilots, like they wouldn't think to call a lawyer until after they're in the shit storm. You're exactly right. So they're already in it. They're already in the HIMSS program and they're realizing, oh my God, this is for life, right? So mm-hmm. I'm getting pet tested. I can't go on vacations. I can't go with my family. I have to go to um, you know, AA three times a week. I have to see this counselor. I have to see that therapist. I, you know what I mean? They're they're in this storm and then they realize this is for the rest of my flying career. That's about 95% of my uh, clients are those that are already there that call me and say, Joe, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Like I literally cannot do this for the rest of my life. Is there any way to get out of this program or do I just give up flying? That's the call I, I traditionally get. Yeah, I was, um, I've been reading um, the hymns nightmare. And so I, I'm just starting to begin it. And the first thing they lay out is like all the things that the pilot has to do to, uh, that the airline requires them. And I was thinking to myself, how do they do this month after month? Because it's a lot. And I'm like, how do you juggle yeah, yeah. family and your career along with all the requirements that the hymns 
requires you to do, like, it seems like it would be very stressful and actually negatively affect the pilot. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel like the attitude is just because it's almost like I'm just lucky to even from the company and from the pilot, it's almost like the company is saying, listen, we've got this program for you so that you can keep your job. You're just lucky that you have a job, you know, like you got in trouble. You're just lucky that you're even going to be able to keep your job. And I think as the pilot where, you know, this is your livelihood, this is your soul. This is everything that you've ever worked towards your entire life you just go with it. I feel like a lot of these people roll with it because in their head, they're like, you know what? Well, maybe I am. I am just lucky that I get to keep my job, um, which is you're, unfortunate because it shouldn't be that way. You're hundred percent right. Emma. Like this is, uh, um, I, I would take it uh, when you said this is their soul, I would, I would highlight that this is more than a career, right? So this is an actual identity. This is why pilots have a, a hard time, uh, retiring, right? Um, you know, when 65 hits, uh, these pilots are going into a commercial or they're becoming flight instructors, they're charter pilot, you know what I mean? Like they're doing anything else because this is an identity for them, right? When you meet them at a, at a social function or a party, the first thing a pilot is going to tell you is, hey, I'm a pilot, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that's it. So, yeah. so when somebody is questioning that and saying, hey, we're about to strip this from you, uh, pilots are the most docile and obedient creatures in the world, right? We're immediately going to say, I will do absolutely anything. Please do not take this certificate out of my pocket, right? That's removing their identity. So yeah, yeah that, that happens a lot. It, it takes a lot for, for a pilot to stick their head up and go, this is bullshit. This is wrong. Um, that happens very rarely. Yeah, yeah I, that's like something that Emma and I have also touched on is like trying to remove that piloting as your identity because with the people that we work with um with the mental health side it's they may not get their special issuance they may not get their medical back so it is like you have to kind of step back from that identity um and so I have one more question sorry Emma I know that you're next but it just reminded me like some of these pilots who are going into the HEMS program I feel like they've fallen back on the bottle or had this incidence because they haven't been able to deal with their mental health and so Mm -hmm. the only way to get there or like to deal is to drink and Mm -hmm. so then they've created this issue that now they got to go through the HEMS program but it's not actually targeting the mental health struggle that they're having Um, do you see that happen with the HEMS program for sure yeah Maddie that's a great point so um, I've often said in all my uh, you know um, advocating for pilots that I think that there is a big mental health issue Um, and the FAA is so archaic in their regulations and policies and guidelines and treatment of mental health issues that essentially pilots cannot be human, right? Like you, if you're, if you're mourning the loss of a loved one, you're wrong. You can't do that. You can't seek therapy. You can't seek counseling. God forbid you get on a medication. Um, Pilots have to be perfect individuals. And it's a very stressful job, um, you know, in addition to life stressors, being a pilot, I mean, defying gravity and flying a metal tube from point A to point B with 200 souls behind you. I mean, that's, that's, a, a, that's a real big job for anybody, <laughs> let alone life issues. So, so because the FA is so archaic, um, they, they go to what they can do, right? They can't see a doctor. They can't see a psychiatrist. They can't get on medication. So what are they allowed to do? 
well, shit, I can drink some whiskey. So, you know, they start drinking and eventually this mental health problem eventually turns into a substance abuse problem. And the way that I know that's happening in most pilots is because when they are confronted with the fact that they're no longer going to have a certificate unless they go into the HIMSS program, I'd say 99% of my pilots go, no problem, I'm done drinking. Yeah. Because that's not the problem. That's not the issue. They're not true alcoholics that are suffering from relapse and, and remission and out of remission. And um, they're, they're individuals that were, that were self-medicating. They were treating a different issue with alcohol. So when they're told, hey, don't use alcohol, they stop. They're not addicted to that. Wow. That's such a good point. And I'm really, really glad that you brought that up because we we did an episode on hymns and that's something that we kind of touched on is how many of these people are suffering with things that have no relevance to alcoholism. Um, and the blatant surrendering is what's, again, just extremely sad because like I said, it is a soul. Um, and we've talked to a lot of pilots that when they lose their medical, it's like, part of what they have to go through is just having to re almost relearn themselves, you know, and, and relearn and recreate a new identity that's outside of aviation, unfortunately. Right. But so my next question, I know, you know, you said you work with pilots outside of just the HIMSS program. You said you work with pilots, cardiovascular issues, et cetera, et cetera. So from that entire experience, why do you think the special issue in process as a whole is so convoluted? Oh, yeah, that's a deep question. <laughs> so uh, I would say the special issuance, for those of you that want to go look up the reg, is 14 CFR 67401. And in 401A, it says that a special issuance can be given at the discretion of the Federal Air Service. But if you also look into 67407, it says any powers that are given congressionally to the federal air surgeon can also be delegated from the federal air surgeon to CAMI's manager, to an AME, to a regional flight surgeon. So uh, the, the, the line of power is not well defined, right? Special issuance can be, can be granted and denied at many, many different levels. So pilots that are denied a unrestricted medical, what we call an unrestricted medical, is a regular class medical, a third, a second, a first, right? For whatever reason, they don't meet the clinical qualifications to hold that certificate. From that point, we go into this abyss of special issuance where, you know, there's a letter from Cami from Oklahoma City from Dr. O'Brien saying he considered special issuance and then, um, and, and he felt that it was under his, sub, you know, subjective determination, he felt that that airman wasn't qualified to get an SI. And then, you know, it, the, the regulations don't really stay in detail how you should appeal that or where you should appeal that or do you then go to the NTSB or um, what if you provided supplemental information what supplemental information it's it's really a guessing game and it's a guessing game throughout the entire process both procedurally and substantively you're guessing on who you uh, appeal to and you're guessing on how you do that appeal and then you're guessing on what medical records or what argument do you push forward that would reverse that decision that came out of CAMI in that example. So yeah. uh, the, the regulations are not clear. They're not well-defined. And it really is just a, uh, um, you know, pin the tail on the donkey of how you get your SI. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting. I think we talked to you about this, but the fact that, you know, it might just be that one old man sitting in an office that has the yes or no of 
your fate. And I think it's funny because sometimes those doctors, even though the FAA likes to tote them as what you said, you know, oh, these are the best doctors in the United States. No, they're not. <laughs> yeah. No, they're not. You know what I mean? The the doctors that you're probably seeing in your hometown at the hospital down the street are probably more qualified to give you that yes or no answer than some of the people that are working for the FAA right now. And that's a big problem. You're, you hit the nail on the head is, is these doctors have not been clinicians for sometimes many, many decades. Um, I can think of doctors within the FAA that haven't clinically seen a patient in 30 plus years. So as you know, medication, uh, excuse me, the medical world is dynamic, right? We're constantly developing new things. We're learning new things. We're treating things differently. It's an ongoing uh, evolution um, that the FAA doesn't recognize. Um, so they sit with their own archaic policies, guidelines, and regulations. Meanwhile, doctors in the field that are clinically seeing these patients every day and dealing with these issues every day, um, their opinions are often disregarded. Yeah. Um, so I can think of many, many cases that I've had, um, specifically within the realm of uh, uh, cardiology, where I have had a doctor draft a very thorough letter, a treating physician draft a very thorough letter of their HMP, their diagnosis, their plan, send it to the FAA, and the FAA will still deny the airmen and request raw data testing, uh, um, you know, uh, maybe like a, a nuclear test or a Brady test, and they'll, they'll ask for tracings. And they do that because they want to interpret them, right? Oklahoma wants to interpret them. Well, go figure, Oklahoma doesn't have any cardiologists on staff. So the fact that they're taking a, a clinical letter and they're disregarding it and saying, no, we want to look at our own data, um, but they don't have the staff, the knowledge, the willpower, um, the education to read those records is brutal. It's brutal. It's just a... Uh, um it's, it's wrong it's almost like fraudulent honestly <laughs> i don't know it just seems wrong because it's like you're not going to take the opinion of someone who sees this pilot every day and knows exactly what's going on with them and you're gonna just outright be disrespectful and say no their opinion doesn't matter and, and right. their expertise and no let us read it we don't even have the the level of knowledge this doctor has or know the pilot intimately but we can make the right decision for this pilot like that just seems backwards to me and they think it's they think it's liability based right so some attorney yeah. somewhere down the line said hey you guys got to make the determination you're liable if this pilot plows one in right but that's not the case that's not the case one, they're the federal government. So like, you know, excuse me, they're not liable for shit. Um, it's so hard to sue the federal government on stuff mm -hmm. like this. But, you know, notwithstanding that fact, uh, they're not liable because they have in their file a credible uh, evaluation and consult from a treating physician. So, you know, I mean, don't go tell those treating physicians, but honestly, they're liable, right? The mm -hmm. FAA, if they're sitting in front of a room of senators goes, hey, look, the airman was followed uh, closely by this cardiologist and this cardiologist recommended bang, 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 and bang, and came to the conclusions of A, B, C, and D. And based on that clinical interpretation and consultation, we granted the airman a medical certificate. So really the liability is on that doctor. Yeah, we, we often talk about the FAA and their liability, trying to deflect liability all the time. So that really does make sense. But at the same time, it's like you said, like the liability is on the doctor. 
Um, but that kind of leads me into my next question, because one of the things we had talked about is kind of like the money ring the FAA and the companies have made off of pilots medicals, um, which is to say that there are specific like qualified doctors, like you said, for pilots who are required to see uh, further testing. So can you explain why that needs to change or kind of like some of the pitfalls that have happened because of this layout? Yeah, for sure. So um the faa if we're talking about the hymns program we're coming back into that right like if we go back to yeah. my example yeah, yeah, of yeah. a pilot who got called um you know and, and was was uh, found to be quote unquote drunk going to an airplane um as i said the eap the eap in that scenario said hey you need to go get evaluated um we have a doctor to evaluate well the doctor that they're referring to is a hymns psychiatrist right and these are psychiatrists all over the country that have taken the, the specialized HIMSS training and are recognized by the FAA to be an evaluator, a HIMSS evaluator. And that doctor theoretically will look at an airman and say, all right, based on these criteria, we think that there's a substance dependence issue or a substance abuse issue, you need to go to rehab. Um, the problem with the 121 world is even though these doctors exist all over the country, right? There's HIMSS doctors in California, there's HIMSS psychs in Florida. The problem with the 121 world is they have defined the HIMSS program so tightly um, that when their pilots have an issue, they're going to the exact same doctor every single time. Um, and not all HIMSS docs are cut uh, from the same cloth, even though the FA likes to believe that. Um, we find that uh, a lot of these carriers are pushing pilots to a HIMSS psych where they know exactly what that decision is going to be, right? They know it's always going to be substance uh, dependence and go figure that psychiatrist also owns a rehab center. And sure enough, that person's getting uh, rehabilitated now through that center. And then, and then uh, the airline Delta is making money. And then, uh, and then they're making money not only in the rehab center that they own, but then also making money from the FAA that pays them. So yeah, the problem is, is, it's not with the qualification of the doctor, it's uh, the persuasion of the doctor. Um, mm -hmm. Same doctor is giving the exact same opinion. And I can tell you, based on airlines, I can literally uh, uh, take like an American pilot, I can black out their name on their, on their uh, psych evaluation, their him psych evaluation. I can take another American pilot, black out their name, and I can hold both records up to the, uh, uh, the screen and they look identical. Nice. So... Um, that's your problem with when money gets involved in this situation. Money seems to be always the root cause of like everything bad. Yes. And it, it, with all of these equations, it always boils down to money and it money can be evil. But I so wanted to kind of touch on the fact that, you know, as we all kind of know, if you're a pilot who disclosed taking an SSRI, which is a serotonin selective rehabilitator update. I don't even know how, what it is. Reuptake inhibitor. Thank you, Maddie. Um, so basically it's used to treat anxiety, sometimes depression, but you know, what's your opinion on the, these, these pilots who are on these medications having to go through the HIMSS pathway? Um, as we all know, and what we spoke about often is it seems to be the only pathway for these pilots. Again, what's your opinion on that? And have you ever dealt with this in your own work? Yeah, so I deal with this almost daily. Um, I will say to the FA's credit, 
Um, the pathway is, um, at, it at least allows some medication and some treatment. The problem that I have with it is it's too, uh, it's too defined, it's too objective. Um, when you're talking about mental health issues, uh, they're subjective and they're dynamic and they're different and unique, which is why we have SNR, uh, you know, SSRIs, we have SNRIs, we have barbiturates, we have uh, a number of different medication to treat that exact illness or that exact condition. Um, the, the SSRI protocol, the pathways one and two that the FAA utilizes are objective. They're literally a flow chart. If this, yeah. then this, if this, <laughs> then this, if this, yeah. then this. <laughs> and, and that's just not how that diagnosis works. And, and the other aspect of it is it's not been revisited since it was originally drafted. Um, so it only allows for four SSRIs and they're, the way that they're administered is so tight that it doesn't meet the way that they're, those four medication are clinically administered in the field. So that it needs to be revisited. It needs to be revamped. Um, but, you know, is it ever going to happen? I don't know. Yeah. It, it's just interesting because I always think is HEMS is really directed towards an addiction-based mindset. And these people on an SSRI typically don't have an addiction. They are struggling with anxiety and depression. So I'm like, how does HEMS and, and I know they follow that 12-step program actually helping someone with an SSRI, like, I don't, I don't see those two really helping. Um, and what I've heard from pilots um, that have come and messaged me who have taken an SSRI and been on the pathway, who have said they've gone through hymns, they're like, they really just treat me like I'm an addict. So it right. hasn't helped me at all. Right. <laughs> um, so I agree, something needs to happen there where, where they change something. Um, but I want to say another profound thing that you had said in our pre-pod conversation is that, you know, hymns is kind of like a crapshoot, um, but it's here to stay. Um, Cause I think a lot of people are like, well, what would you do if you got rid of hymns? And that's, we don't want to like tear it down. So we kind of need to build it better. So what do you think could help in making hymns like a stronger program for pilots? Sure. So um, I'm, I'm very open about this, that I represent some pilots who will come to me with their medical records and their court records and, um, you know, psych evals and therapist evals. And I will say to them, you need to go into the HIMSS program, right? You need actual help. And when the HIMSS program functions like that, I think it's appropriate. The problem is, is when you have, you know, actual addicts and actual alcoholics that are in the HIMSS program, part of that program is peer monitoring. Part of that program is peer sharing uh, through AA, birds of a feather, right? It's really a support group as well as getting clinical treatment. When the airlines throw pilots into the HIMSS program just for CYA purposes, think about this. In a recovery room, in a recovery setting where they're using group therapy, you have one pilot that is struggling with addiction, that is talking about how family gatherings are difficult for them, um, how you know their friends going out to bars after work is difficult for them. Um, you know, and, and all the triggers that they're having to face. And then, you know, two chairs over is a pilot that goes, yeah, I have absolutely no problem quitting. They told me I can't drink anymore. So I stopped drinking. I don't understand this program. It's not a big deal for me. Um, I have to do this test and this test. It's not a big deal for me. Then you have the actual addict sitting there going, oh my gosh, this person is in the same room as me. They obviously are supposed to be here just like I'm supposed to be here, but they don't seem to have a problem quitting. And they don't seem to have a problem with temptation and they don't seem to have a problem with urge. 
and and this is just a non-event for them in a life cycle and and that what happens to that actual addict is they start self-doubting i'm not making the progress that i should be making this person's way ahead of me and you know and then next thing you know they're spiraling into the point of relapse um that's what we see pretty regularly as the hymns program itself if we were to take away those CYA um, people that shouldn't be in the HIMSS program, if we were to take those people away, I think the HIMSS program can function. Now it needs tweaks. Uh, this whole lifetime monitoring thing, um, that's a whole different line of questioning that I'm happy to go into. But I think the HIMSS program itself is, is good at the core. As long as we trust clinical medicine, we trust the reason that the airman is in there, I think it works. Um, so we need to get to an undiluted um pure hymns program again like we had in the 70s kind of like the companies in the fa need to stop using like the hymns program as like a disciplinary school that's kind of what it seems like they use it as that's perfect yeah yeah you're exactly right manny so like you kind of just touched on there obviously there's like seems to be a big difference between pilots who are actually addicts and then some who maybe maybe you would call it like alcohol dependent or maybe they had a little bit of they got caught drinking whatever it may be so how do you how do you figure out what's the difference between the two and then touching back on what maddie said about how some of these pilots are probably just struggling mentally and their only fallback for relief is the bottle how do they figure out the root cause without going down the hymns pathway or through hymns so i think this is where we need to trust hymns psychiatrist and not the hymns psychiatrist that's connected to the 121s right that also owns a rehab center that also has a fast line into mm -hmm. testing, right? Like we need to, there are him psychiatrists around the country that I work with daily um, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the term pilot advocates, but I would use the term clinician, uh, uh, clinical psychiatrist, right? Um, that are trained to identify those issues that can, that can do an evaluation and go, no, 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 no. This was an event of alcohol use that may have been on the verge of abuse um, but that's not our main issue here. We need to treat the pilot for this, this, and this. Um, I think we need to go back to that. And honestly, when I represent pilots pre-HIMS program, that's what I do is I will take those pilots and rather than use their 121, you know, cookie cutter program with the exact same doctors that are going to put the exact same opinions out there, uh, I will put them to actual clinicians that are HIMS recognized that will truly evaluate the airmen, find out what the issue is and provide a monitoring or an opinion or a report that, that reflects the need. Um, so I, I think the system is built to work, but it is not working right now. Yeah, it seems more like these people are capitalizing off pilots rather than truly helping them. And I like how you said, like HIMSS is good at the core, but lots of times as things grow and mutate like they can be there can be like bad areas and bad apples in the system which i think we've seen um and the company usually typically is wants the pilot to just step in line and and be a good soldier and do what they say so it can be hard to know at times if your company when they're like you need to go see this therapist if they actually have your best interests at heart um, so I guess like one of my last questions, because I'm thinking like as a pilot, how do they know if the therapist or psychologist actually isn't like 
you know, gaining something off of them from doing their, their, like seeing them or doing their exam? How, how are they supposed to know that they have their best interest at heart? Yeah, here's what I struggle with is when an airline says, go see this doctor, okay. right? Yeah. Go see this doctor. That's a problem. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be going and seeing uh, a specific doctor uh, specifically named, right? The airline should be saying, go see a him psychiatrist, okay. right? Because they're all cut from the same cloth. So, um, you know, theoretically, right? <laughs> so, um, so that's what should be happening. And I, and I think whenever an airline is saying to a pilot, go see this person for your evaluation, that should immediately hit those spidey senses in the pilot saying, this isn't right. Why am I going to see an exact one person? Um, why shouldn't I be able to go see a him psychiatrist or a him psychologist or any hymns AME that I want? That's yeah. the issue. Do you want to name the worst offenders? Uh, I'm happy to name uh, Delta. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, if they want to come at me, they can certainly come at me. Um, yeah. Their rehab centers are very well known, um, as are uh, those used by American Airlines. Go figure Delta and American have the exact same rehab center down there in Atlanta. Okay, there we go. I'm glad you called them out because I wanted, I wanted to, so. I'm glad you did it. But um, that kind of like wraps up our questions and gave us a lot to think about. Um, I've definitely learned quite a few things from you. Um, but I know that our audience probably wants to be able to connect with you. So where do they find you at? Yeah, I'm at uh, uh, ramoslaw.com. Um, I'm on no social media, but I do have a LinkedIn uh, that I use for the sole purpose of trolling the FAA. Um, so yes, love. To <laughs> so, so feel free to follow that at your discretion um there's at least a, a chuckle a week um on uh issues that that uh that are pretty significant so all you had to say was troll faa and all of our followers were like yes we're gonna ding, go ding, 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 ding. Yeah. yeah the ears just got hot like <laughs> eyes were perked up we're sitting straight up in our seats now <laughs> yeah that's it that, that's my favorite thing to do on Instagram. I like, I only use my personal page for literally trolling the, the FAA's Instagram, but I also use the podcast Instagram for the same thing. So they get a Love double it. whammy from me. <laughs> yes. Love it. All right. Well, like Maddie said, thank you. You know, we're, we've got some fun questions for you, but awesome conversation and just really refreshing to talk to someone who kind of has like like-minded ideas and is so knowledgeable about this stuff. I think you're a great resource for all pilots to have. I uh, appreciate that. And I appreciate what y'all are doing as well. Uh, I mean, this is big. This needs to, I, I know it's a, a touchy issue, right? And I deal with this. I deal with uh, senators and congressmen and congresswomen and representatives all over the country where you know, very candidly, they say to me, Joe, what am I supposed to do with my constituents? They all want a sober pilot. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those things where, you know, the public wants a sober pilot. So, you know, it, most of the senators and, and, and representatives won't touch this issue because it's such a controversial issue to the public. Um, but you guys are doing a fantastic job to highlight that it's not, it can't be generalized like that, right? And, yeah. and we want the exact same thing. We don't want pilots that are flying that have uh, you know, serious issues that aren't being treated. We're just asking for the ability to have pilots have human emotions, human tendencies, and the ability to get treatment for those things that struggle. That's it. 
Yeah. So Amen. reach out to your representatives. Put some put some spotlight on it. For real. Preach it to the choir. Thank you so much, Joe. All right. So some fun questions. I'll start out. So are you a Coke or a Pepsi products kind of guy? Oh man, I don't I don't know. I guess I guess Pepsi, maybe. I don't know. I don't really drink Coke or Pepsi, but like I, I think Coke what do you drink? Pepsi. Uh mostly water. Okay. If listening, it's all water. <laughs> no alcohol. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a sober person. <laughs> coffee and water. That's it. That's it. I don't even drink coffee. It's a stimulant. No, okay. oh <laughs> yeah, coffee God. and water. I was like, do you really not drink coffee? Because like, I just can't see that with all the work that you do. Yeah, there's no way. I, I basically <laughs> live on coffee. Yeah. Well, I'm a Pepsi product person. I am like all about diet Pepsi. I don't know why. It's just like my go-to for soda. What about you, Emma? Mm, well, I'm drinking a Coca-Cola right now. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> All right. So next question for you is, Joe, are you a, like, what kind of movie genres do you like? Horror, rom-com, sci-fi? Like, if you're going to sit down and watch a movie, what's it going to be? So along the movie line, last uh, last week, um, I uh, had the privilege of getting uh, to go to the early release premiere of Top Gun 2. I knew so, you were going to say that. I've Is already it seen it. I've already seen it. And, and like, I'm not going to put out spoilers or anything like that, but uh, I am not kidding when I say that that is the greatest cinematic achievement that this country oh. has put out in the history of Ooh, Hollywood. Oh, you're kind of what? so okay. excited to see it. Okay, Emma okay. is not a Top Gun fan, so. What are we talking about? Uh, <laughs> God damn it, Maddie. I had to call God you out damn because it. I was like, I love Top Gun and Emma. <laughs> I, I had to call you out. Okay. Listen, I'm super excited for the second one because uh, the reason I didn't like the first one is I, okay, I just I thought it was very corny. All right. Um, and they lost me completely when Goose died. I was oh, like, all right, all right, you know, I'm, I'm out, I'm out of here. And the, the same three songs and the really weird kissing that just, ew, I got the ick the entire time. Like I had the ick, like I was nauseous, but I am excited for the new one because I saw Lady Gaga, like something Lady Gaga affiliation. So a, yeah, I mm. love my girl Gaga. So, but I'm, yeah, I'm stoked for the new one. But it, yeah, it's it. It's the greatest movie that we've ever produced. Like, honestly, I think there was probably Hollywood producers that are making other movies. And then that one came out and they saw it and they're like, I don't know what we're doing. Can't do it. We got <laughs> the end of it. That's probably yeah. the end of movies for this nation. <laughs> well, okay, I well, cannot wait to see this movie. I'm like really excited now. It, it oh, better be laugh. really, really you're good. Cry. It's going to be emotional. And Yay. at the end of it, you're just going to want to look for an airplane. That's it. Yes. Okay, I cannot okay. wait um what's your favorite movie genre emma okay so i'm okay i'm not a big movie girl um because all right so i know you know this is a little bit of a trend right now but i am extremely like empathetic so it horror rom-com it nobody can die um it needs to be like I can't do science fiction that'll give me anxiety I I don't like movies like if a movie makes me feel some type of way that's not like a good emotion I just can't do it so I kind of just avoid movies I watch like comedy 
TV. But if I am going to sit down and watch a movie, like my comfort films are Westerns. I <laughs> love Western movies. And I mean, there could like literally gory as, as hell, but it doesn't matter. It's just something about it. It's like an old movie. I love a good old Western. You're like, like, dude, you and Jesse could just be like the best of friends. Cause he loves my husband. He loves Westerns too. He's like in here, like thumbs up, just loves Westerns. <laughs> Me on the other hand, cannot do. And I'm really sad that you hated Top Gun because like, I really love nineties movies. That's all I'll watch on Netflix. Ooh. Like the fact that they put all the 90s, like you've got mail on, on Netflix. I'm like living, reliving my childhood. And, um, those are the movies that I put on. Like if I'm having a bad day, I'm like, I'm watching something from the nineties because they just make me so happy. Love See, it. I don't, I don't, I'm not big into, um, like nineties that, that, that era of um that's because you were too young you were too young to watch those movies growing up I was watching those when I was in high school some could also argue that I'm a little too young to like like Jeremiah and Johnson and are 10 years apart just so you know <laughs> different generations love it <laughs> oh my goodness okay okay so yeah oh my gosh I really want to watch western now um okay anyways that would be a good thing to do tonight so if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Uh, so in 2019, maybe, uh, we got deployed into uh, the desert in the UAE. Oh. Um, and I loved it there. Like, I had such a good time. The food was awesome. The people were awesome. But um, like, where in the UAE? Uh, so we were out of uh, essentially uh, Abu Dhabi. Uh, okay. like a, a little bit out of Abu Dhabi in the desert, um, but um, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, uh, it was it was awesome. Uh, loved every aspect of it. There were there were a couple occasions where like the culture uh, was a little bit weird. Um, like I, I I felt like at one point in time I was going to get arrested on an elevator because two women uh, walked into the elevator and they happened to you know women and men are supposed to stay apart and so I was I was you know like buried in the corner of the elevator as far away from them as humanly possible and staring down at the ground. And one of them leaned against the uh, alarm button of the elevator accidentally. And uh, when the doors opened, uh, you know, two young Arab women and then me in the corner with the alarm going off, security was not super thrilled. Um, but they they handled that issue. The, uh, they stepped up and said, no, 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 it was our fault. We leaned against the button. So, um, But outside of kind of the oddities like that, uh, I loved it. It was fantastic. That's actually like one place I, I haven't been, I've, been, I've traveled quite a bit. So I'm like, and I always thought, hmm, maybe Dubai, but I think I would prefer to go to Abu Dhabi because it seems less like westernized than Dubai. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Dubai is a little bit much um, with, uh, you know, it's it's basically just a walking advertisement. You know what I mean? Like yeah, of, of wealth and, and opulence. And, um, but yeah, Abu Dhabi is a good time and there's a bunch of expats from all over the world there. So yeah, it's, I love it. Right. So that is kind of it for this week's episode. Again, Joe, thank you so much for coming on. I had a fabulous, we had a fabulous conversation and again, I'm just stoked that we got to have this opportunity. Yeah. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate what you, uh, what you guys are doing and, uh, and, and making this something that we can all talk about. Appreciate it. 